as we uh, look through Scripture, we find a number of times in which people's lives were changed at the feet of Jesus. So we've been looking at some of those examples and learning what we can from those folks. This morning I want us to uh, think together about worshiping at His feet. And uh, to help us with that, we're going to turn to the last chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, the first few verses there. We're going to uh, be introduced to some ladies who uh, worshiped at the feet of Jesus. And along the way, we're going to learn a few things about them and about us uh, as well. We're in Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, as soon as we read that far, you already know the context of the story. You hear that story at least once a year. And I want to suggest to all of us that the fact that we only hear that story once a year is probably not a very good tradition. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changed the entire world and it changed all of eternity for any of us who accept him and put our lives in his hands. How then can we only talk about the resurrection on the holiday of Easter? It's a mistake that we make too often. As a matter of fact, every time we have worship, we are actually remembering his resurrection because Saturday was the day of worship until Jesus was, uh, came back to life and, and his resurrection was celebrated on the Sunday following his crucifixion. And it was because of that uh, discovery that Jesus had been risen from the dead on Sunday morning that now we worship every Sunday instead of Saturday. So when we get together, we're remembering it, but we don't talk about his resurrection enough. And to relegate it to one day out of the year is a mistake on our part. It reminds me of the guy who only went to church on Easter. And as they left Easter worship that one, that one year, he said to his wife, I've come to this church four times now, and that preacher only knows one thing to talk about. <laughs> we only talk about it on Easter, and that needs to change. And so this morning, it's going to change. You see, as we read the text, that this was after the Sabbath. Jesus had died on the cross, and they had quickly prepared his body, but they couldn't fully prepare his body. They took his body down, kind of wrapped him up and put him in the grave because as soon as the sun went down on Friday, they, they, they're not supposed to work anymore. And so they couldn't take care of his body correctly, appropriately. And so then they had to wait until sun up on Sunday morning so they could work again. And once it was okay to work again, they were going to be there. Scripture tells us that they arrived before sunup. They were there ready to go. As soon as it was acceptable to do so, they were going to show 
Jesus the respect that he deserved by, by completing the preparation of his body as it laid there in the tomb. And so it says that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Verse 2, it says, Behold, there was a great earthquake. Now, we lose something in translation there because it says, Behold, there was an earthquake. Doesn't mean that once they got there, then there was an earthquake. It says, Behold, meaning when they got there, they, they could see that there was, past tense, had been an earthquake. And we kind of miss that sometimes because it, it loses something when we go from Greek to English. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel. What had caused that earthquake? An angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The guards saw this angel come down, roll open the stone. By the way, always remember that the stone was not rolled away so Jesus could get out. The, roll, the stone was rolled away so that we could look in. The angel comes down and he opens the, the, the grave. He sits on the stone and the guards around tremble with fear and become like dead men. I think that means they passed out. They were so overwhelmed by their experience, their poor little brains couldn't handle it, neither could yours, by the way, and they just dropped. They were like dead men. And so it says uh, um, in verse 5, The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. He told them that this was going to happen. He told them on more than one occasion, he told his disciples, I'm going to die and I'll come back to life. He said it in different ways at different times in different places, but he had told them ahead of time. And so now the angel is able to say, you can put your full trust in Jesus because what he says is true. What he does is real. He told you he'd come back to life, and he has. He's not here because he's alive. He is risen. It says in verse 6, he's not here, he is risen. Just as he said, come, see the place where he lay. The invitation is come and look inside. That's why we opened the door for you, so you could look inside. That same invitation is, is extended to us today. Come and see. See the fact that he's not dead anymore. See that his power is alive. See that he is real. That he does not lay in a tomb somewhere, but that he walks with us and talks with us along life's narrow way because he lives. Then verse 7, then go. You see, there's two invitations. Come and go. The first one said, come and see. Verse 7, then, then go quickly and tell his disciples. And again, that is the invitation to disciples. Come and see, then go and tell. That sums up our purpose in life. 
As we said last week, our purpose in life is to know him and make him known. Come and see that he is alive and then go and tell the others who need to know. Go and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. The last half of verse 7. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Verse 8 says, So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Now verse 9 is where I want us to camp out this morning. Because look at what happens on verse 9. The women leave the tomb and they are on their way to tell the disciples. They can't wait to get there and tell the good news, but they are interrupted in their journey. In verse 9 it says, Behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Perhaps your translation uses the old word, Hail. It's a great word. It's the same word that the angel used when the angel came to tell Mary, you're going to have the Son of God. The angel shows up and says, Hail, O blessed one. It's the same word, greetings. In Texas, we'd say, Hey, y'all. But this word carries with it just another, another element that we can't quite express with our normal hello or greetings. It carries with it uh, the, uh, an idea of rejoicing. This word is, hey, let's rejoice because we're together again. Greetings. Hey. And so he says, greetings. And they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshiped him. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. As we think about what that must have been like for them, they had just seen an angel, they had heard the angel, they had seen the empty tomb, they're on their way to tell the news, and here is Jesus before them, and their first reaction is to fall at his feet, to hold on to his feet, and to worship him. And as we look at their example, we learn some things about worship. First, they teach us whom we worship. It says very clearly that they fell at his feet and worshiped him. Now the reason that's important is they did not make the mistake of worshiping the angel who gave them the good news. They waited until they saw him and they fell at his feet. In the book of Acts, Cornelius gets so excited about what God is doing that he falls at Peter's feet and tries to worship Peter. And Peter says, nah, no, you at the wrong feet. Don't worship me. In the book of Revelation, John gets so caught up in what's happening as he hears these great messages from the angels, he falls at the feet of the angel and starts to worship. And the angel says, hey, John, you at the wrong feet. Don't worship me. Worship God. And I want to suggest to you that without meaning to, we can very easily slip into the mistake of falling at the wrong feet. There are some really good people all around us who do really good things and because we can see them and because we can interact with them, it becomes very easy for us to make the mistake of worshiping the messenger or the musician or the church or the tradition or the worship style 
it becomes very easy for us to fall at the wrong feet if we're not careful. And so Deuteronomy reminds us, take care. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and worship other gods. Don't fall at the wrong feet. In Psalm 99, it tells us who we worship. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool, or we could say at His feet. Holy is He. That word holy doesn't mean that He's good, although He is. The word holy doesn't even mean that He's all-powerful, although He is. The word holy means different. Not like any other. And so scripture says, exalt the Lord, worship at his feet, because there is no one like him. He is the only one who is God. So we make sure we worship him. Not only do we learn from them whom we worship, but we learn also how we worship. It's, if, you, if you just look at the picture in that short verse 9, there's so much there in that, in that image of the women on the ground, face down at his feet. I almost wonder as they are in the dirt, humbling themselves before him, holding onto his feet, I wonder if they could see the scars on those feet. Later, Thomas could see the scars. Could the women see the scars and be reminded of all that he had done for them? Could that drive their worship? As we see them bowing and, and, and prostrate before him at his feet, we see what worship really involves. In worship there is humility. That's part of what it means to, to be at someone else's feet. When we put ourselves at the feet of Jesus, we're saying, you're God and I'm not. We're saying, I know my position. My position is below you. You're God, I'm not. You're the creator, I'm the creation. I humble myself. That's the reason we kneel when we pray from time to time. It's an act of humility. There's also a sense of eagerness here as, it's, as the, the Bible says, um, that, that it uses a word that says they kind of lunged at his feet. They, they, they quickly held on to him. Behold, it says, Jesus met them and said greetings and they came up and took hold of his feet. There's an eagerness there as they can't wait to worship him. I wonder how many of us experience that eagerness in our own personal worship time, much less our corporate worship time. Do we look forward to worshiping him? Are we eager? Are we excited about the opportunity to be in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus Christ? Or have we allowed it to become just the routine thing we do because that's what good Christians do? There's an eagerness when it's really worship. Perhaps we lose the eagerness when it's just going to church. But there's also a sense of adoration. There's a sense of adoration when we come to his feet. They are at his feet and they're holding on. They are adoring him. There's a, it's an expression of love. 
Worship is adoration. It is all about the relationship and it is an expression of love. Not only do we recognize him in his greatness and, and, and we come to him in humility, but we can't wait to be in his presence. And the reason for that is because we love him. We want to express that love. If our worship lacks adoration, then it's not fully worship. Adoration is, oh, oh God, we love you. That's why we sing over and over, Jesus, we love you. We love you. We love you. That is worship. Not only is there adoration, but there is a sense of reverence. There's a sense of reverence as we bow before him, acknowledging the king of all the kings, the Lord of all the lords, as we as we recognize that he alone is worthy, he alone is God, Jesus is like no other. There is a sense of reverence in our coming to him. Don't let us forsake or forget reverence in worship. I like the way that we can be informal as we worship. I like the, the way that we can celebrate our relatedness, our relationship as a church family, those are all very good things and I don't wanna do anything to squelch any of that, but let us never forget that the main reason we meet in this room together is an act of reverent worship to an almighty God who deserves, desires, and demands our worship. There's a reverence. And although it's not explicit in the text, I think it is implied by their actions that there is a sense of thanks in worship. And although we don't see it explicitly in this text, it is clearly stated elsewhere in Scripture that thanksgiving is a part of worship, that it's a major part of worship. We see it in Psalm 100, verse 4, that Todd uh, quoted earlier. We let us enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Some years ago when we built this sanctuary, one of the first things we did was uh, once the floor was, was, was laid, uh, we, we had a special service where we came in with magic markers and uh, we, we wrote on the, on the floor and, and even on some beams and up here on the wood we wrote where we thought we might be sitting. We wrote our favorite verses and, and we wrote different things where it was appropriate and, and you don't know it, but every time you walk through those doors, you walk over, because I did it myself right there at the entrance, you walk over those words when you come in this sanctuary, you cross over the words that says, let us enter with thanksgiving. Let us come before him with praise. That's the purpose and the point. Now, I don't know if you noticed as we looked at what worship really involves and includes, humility, eagerness, adoration, reverence, and thanks, that it speaks of the heart of worship. This is the heart of worship. This is what worship is all about. It's not about the music or the preaching per se. The music and the preaching and the reading and the praying, those are the vehicles that we use to get where we're trying to go. Where we're trying to go is a heart that is connected to God in a way that can't happen anywhere other than in worship and praise. 
when it comes to worship, remember, we are to be the producers, not the consumers. We live in a time in which even church is consumer-driven. Do I like it? Is that my kind of music? Was this too loud or that too soft? How would I critique it? But friends, worship is not about us being consumers to see what we can experience and get out of it. Worship is about what can I give to God while I'm here? We produce worship from the heart. And so we learn from them how we worship. Remembering Romans 12 and 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul did not say sing the right songs or preach the right way or build your sanctuary in the right shape. He said you live your lives as a sacrifice and that's real worship. We learn from these ladies whom we worship, how we worship, and we even learn a little bit about why we worship. Look at what they've been through. They followed him, they listened to him, they were changed by him, they loved him, and then they watched him die. They didn't watch him suffer and be rescued. They watched him die. He was dead. And then they watched as they took that naked Savior from that cruel tree and they put him in the ground to wait until later. And when they showed up to show him the reverence and the respect that he deserved, their world was changed. He's not here. He is risen, just like he said. And they can't wait to go and share the news, and on their way, here he is. Imagine what must have gone on in their hearts, in their minds. Here he is. And they fell at his feet to worship him. They worshiped him because he had died for them. They worshiped him because he was alive. They worshiped him because he proved he was God. They worshiped him because he defeated sin and death and hell. They worshiped him because he deserved it. He was the creator, the sustainer, the savior, the risen Lord. And we worship him for all the same reasons. Because he died for us. Because he is alive because he has proven that he's God, because he defeated sin and death and hell, because he deserves it as the creator, sustainer, savior, risen Lord. We sang just a moment ago, out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Jesus, yours is the victory. That's why we worship him. And so I leave you with Philippians 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. What happens when we bow on our knees? We wind up at his feet. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee should bow as we worship him. We worship him at his feet because that's where we belong and that's what he deserves. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for living. Thank you for dying. Thank you for coming back to life. Lord Jesus, thank you for changing our lives when we get out of the way and let you. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege, the opportunity, and the joy of being in your presence, of worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Thank you. Forgive us when we take those things for granted. Forgive us, Lord, when we think church is about church or we think church is about me. Forgive us when we fail to worship you in a way that is meaningful and honest and true and, and real. Fix us, God, we pray, that we might be true worshipers of the true God 